0: and a very warm welcome to this week's Geraldine Jameson interview. Now, it is a real privilege to introduce my highly talented and instantly recognisable guest today. Best-loved actress, theatre, film, television, most notably as Hyacinth Bouquet in Keeping Up Appearances and, of course, in the title role of Hetty Wainthrop Investigates. Amongst her credits... She won the British Comedy Award in 1991, nominated for two BAFTA TV Awards, 92 and 93, appointed OBE in 1993, and a CBE in 2004. Well, Patricia Routledge, a very warm welcome indeed. To the programme.
1: Thank you. It's lovely to be here. It's lovely to be on your programme and indeed to be in Port Erin and on the island again, which I've not visited since 1986.
0: Yes, th- that's amazing because I was not really aware before meeting your good self that you had this uh, connection. I think it was through your father. My
1: father came over here and spent the last 15 years of his life, he loved the sea, he knew the island a little bit, and he came for a weekend and he rang me from a red telephone box on the top road here, which they've taken away, I'm rather sad to tell you, on a Sunday afternoon and said they're selling plots of land and they're building small bungalows. And I just said, go for it. And he was very, very happy here with my dear stepmama.
0: Well, now I've caught up with you while you've been on the island at our Erin Arts Centre down here in uh, Port Erin, of course, performing at Mission One Shilling, which tells the extraordinary story of British pianist Dame Mara Hesse and her famous wartime National Gallery concerts keeping morale maintained in London as the bombs rained down during World War II. Tell us a little bit about the production. Well,
1: it's a very simple production. The basic concept is that I tell the story from letters, broadcasts, the odd diary, recorded conversations, remembered conversations with people... And Piers Lane, who is a brilliant pianist, plays selections from her repertoire. And they're very, very carefully chosen. Her great-nephew, Nigel Hess, originally got the script together. And then four of us, Nigel, Piers, a young director called Christopher Luscombe and myself would meet and spend a wonderful workshop hours with very merry lunches, I remember. <laughs> so we put a, hours into the text. And uh, it's such a privilege to tell this story. It's very, very powerful. And I saw and heard Myra Hess play in Liverpool, at the Liverpool Philharmonic Hall in the 40s, during the war. Not only did she set up the concerts at the gallery, but she shot off every so often to other danger areas that were being blitzed. Just remarkable. I mean, it was half a crown on the platform in my school uniform, and she was just a few yards away. Never forget it.
0: Well, you must have been very young yourself at that particular concert. Well, concept. thank
1: you very much, I was, <laughs> but not too young to uh, remember it very clearly.
0: I think you've done extraordinarily well and really set the scene for us. You studied English literature and language at Liverpool University, and you went on to train at the Bristol Old Vic. When did you first decide that acting was the career you wanted to pursue?
1: Well, I don't know. That's, that's a terribly difficult question to answer. I always say that kicking and screaming, I finally faced my destiny. I mean, I never intended to make a living like this or do it. I was never stage-struck. I still am not. But theatre was very much part... Of the family background, in the sense that I would hear the grown ups talking about productions of earlier days my grandmother and granddad, and my mother and father when they were courting, they would remember uh, some of the plays and the musicals that they saw. And in Birkenhead, Cheshire, where I was born, there was a most remarkable music hall. I mean, the, the, the country was full of music halls up until, really, after the Second World War. And then it all disintegrated, mainly through the advent of television. But the Argyle-Birkenhead was a great place. And my father and mother were given complimentary tickets for a Monday night. They never went together. They wouldn't leave the children on their own. My father went either with his best friend or my mother went with our favourite uncle. And one of the most important family gatherings at the end of a week, usually with a nice high tea at my grandmother's, was this court of honour when the grown-ups would discuss the quality of the music hall bill the previous week. And all the greats played there. But I began my paid working life at the Liverpool Playhouse. And that was a very prestigious um, repertory company. Of course, repertory theatres flourished all over the country. And my heart aches nowadays uh, for the fact that young actors cannot learn their job in these wonderful places. You know, you learned, you watched experienced actors, you made your mistakes, and you did all sorts of jobs. <laughs> I mean, I can boast that I began my working life sweeping the stage,
0: yes. it doesn't do any harm? Not at all. To start- I know about it from the bottom up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And you say that with feeling. So, do you think it's sad then that in the present day, young people don't have areas like a repertory to hone their skills and, and really learn their craft? I think it's
1: tragic, actually. And a lot of agents, of course, are so keen for young actors to wait for the cameo role in a film or be on television to get known straight away. So it's really very, very sad, I think.
0: You've had a prolific career in theatre in the UK and the US of A. You're a long-standing member of the Royal Shakespeare Company and your West End credits include Little Mary Sunshine, Noises Off and, of course, The Importance of Being Earnest. What keeps drawing you back to working on the stage?
1: That is a good question, That's the test, really. There is nothing like exchanging an imaginative experience with a live audience. There is nothing like it. And when it works, it's satisfying for both parties, for the artist, the performer, and for the
0: audience. It's thrilling, it must be. Yes, absolutely. You got to work with one of your great idols, the actor Alastair Sim. Oh, yes, yes. I went
1: to the Chichester Festival Theatre uh, purely to play opposite him. He was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And I, I quietly learned so much just being on a stage with him.
0: Well, now, you've worked on both sides of the pond in the theatre, film, television and radio, Have you a preference for a particular venue or medium? Good writing.
1: I'll go anywhere if it's good writing. And good writing fulfills what it sets out to do, whether it's drama, tragedy, comedy, farce, sitcom, whatever. If it achieves what its original pretensions were then it is good writing, and that's what I'm about. I love the language, you see, and the text is all-important.
0: Well, now, just a little reminder here. You are listening to the Geraldine Jameson interview on Manx Radio, and my charming guest today, known to millions throughout the world as the redoubtable Hyacinth in Keeping Up Appearances and as the elderly sleuth, in Hetty Wainthrop Investigates, is regarded one of Britain's most distinguished, if not the most distinguished actress, Patricia Routledge, of course. Well, just um, taking you briefly across the proverbial pond for a little while, you've appeared in several shows on Broadway. How does the theatre world there differ in, with say, the West End? Well, the expectations
1: are intensely high and a lot of money goes into it and you're made to know the cost of everything Uh, and they want their money back and they want it back fast. The audiences are wonderful and warm unless halfway through something they feel they're disappointed and then you can sense uh, the goodwill really quietly disappearing... (laughs) That must be frightening. Well, yes, but you just have to keep going and uh, know why you're doing it, you know. I mean, that happened with the last musical that Leonard Bernstein wrote, which everybody's expectations were high, and it simply didn't work. And so the disappointment, was immense. Of course, a lot of money involved, too. Oh, I think... I mean, it's nothing now. Two million dollars is nothing now. (laughs) But I can always say that I helped to um, spend two million dollars' worth of Coca-Cola's money. (laughs) Lovely. (laughs) They were the money behind it all. (laughs) In
0: 1968, you won a Tony Award for Best Actress for your performance in Darling of the Day a massively prestigious award what are you your memories really of that particular evening
1: well it was a wonderful experience again it wasn't uh, the piece wasn't a great success it was based on a marvelous novel by arnold bennett the potteries writer and it was called buried alive bennett himself turned it into a play called The Great Adventure. It then became a film called Holy Matrimony with Gracie Fields and Monty Woolley. And you can pick this up at half past two in the morning or the middle of the night. Every so often they show it. A marvellous piece. Um, The best part, of course, is the woman's, not the man's. And then finally they decided... That they would turn it into a musical. I loved every minute of it, uh, and it had a marvellous score by Jules Stein, you know, writer of the Gypsy score and other marvellous um,
0: musicals.
1: It was a pity.
0: You've worked with them all, really, haven't you, <laughs> Patricia? You're closely associated with Alan Bennett performing his monologues A Woman of No Importance and from his Talking Heads series A Lady of Letters and Miss Fossard Finds Her Feet. Would you say it's an actor's gift to receive, you know, such scripts from one of the world's most acclaimed writers? Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's the greatest uh, honour you can be paid, really. And he wrote... You mentioned A Woman of No Importance, which was his very first attempt at a monologue. And he wrote it for me. And uh, I remember I'd just come back from America and we were having a conversation. And he said, I've written a little piece for you. I'll pop it through your letterbox. And I said, well, ring the doorbell, for goodness sake. (laughs) It was Christmas time. He said, no, no, it's only a little piece. It's only about 12 minutes long. Well, it was 45 or 47 minutes long. And I remember that he popped it through the letterbox and I was coming away here to Port Erin to spend Christmas with my father and I read it on Boxing Day afternoon. And I was quite overwhelmed by it. Because it's about a not very attractive woman who has cancer. And you never know whether she knows or whether she doesn't. And he, he, he takes the journey right through. And I've never asked him, but he did know... That my dear stepmama had lost the battle with a brain tumor, and that I kept flying in and out to support my father, to make it appear that life was going on and there was a future. Um, and I think that triggered off. One day i I will ask him. but uh, it was an extraordinary piece to rehearse, and the final scenes I could never get through without um, breaking down, because the observation was so acute. And then when I finally did it for television, it was like a great release. It was like a great benediction, really. It was extraordinary. In
0: 1990, one of your most famous characters... I never know whether Hy- Hyacinth's Bucket, you know, or Hyacinth's uh burst onto our TV screens. The series Keeping Up Appearances was written by the veteran writer Roy Clark. Were you immediately attracted to the role?
1: Again, the little story is that the director-producer, Harold Snowed, rang my agent at lunchtime one day and said, I've, there's been a script sitting on my desk... And uh, I've read it, and there's only one person who leaps from the page. Well, looking back now, I don't know whether that was a compliment (laughs) or not. He said, would she ever think of doing a situation comedy? And my agent said, well, let's see the evidence. So he said he'd bike over the script in the afternoon. Well, it never came in the afternoon, And I was going out early to the theatre. It had never arrived. And I went to the theatre and I went out to supper afterwards and I got home at about a quarter past one and there it was on the doorstep. And I looked at the envelope and I thought, oh, it'll be like all the others. I'll know five pages in whether it's any good or not. And anyway, I'll probably leave it till the morning. Anyway, then my curiosity... Took the better of me, and I slit open the envelope and I just started to read it. And I read it straight through. And I started to laugh. Yes. And uh, I mean, the main thing, I suppose, was that I I felt that I could knit this woman up, really. (laughs) She did leap from the page. And then the next morning, I read it again, which is always a good time to assess and make decisions and I rang my agent about a quarter to ten and said, if Roy Clark hadn't been writing this for me, he should have been. Let's go ahead. So we went ahead with a pilot and usually after a pilot script, the great and the good, the executives up there in their offices have to see a showing of it, then they confer then they set a date to go, perhaps, for a first series way ahead. We were in production with a series within three or four
0: weeks. Yes. Well, as well as some superb lines, there was a lot of physical comedy <laughs> oh, yes. with and often falling over into hedges or worse, into water and such like. I mean, did you enjoy the physical demands of the role?
1: I'm basically a clown, I suppose. (laughs) Yes, I did. I'm rather astonished now to think I did all that. (laughs) But uh, we had a wonderful time with it. It was a very good uh, company of people, you know, and you get to know each other very well. And you have to be like a family. And you have to put up... each other's little <laughs> idiosyncrasies and, and forgive and get on. and
0: Well, talk about keeping up. A year after Keeping Up Appearances, you took on the title role in the BBC detective drama Hetty Wainthrop Investigates. Now, was it the contrast to Hyacinth that actually attracted you to the part? Well, basically, the part attracted me. I thought she was so
1: wonderful, and I understood her very well. North country, you know, down to earth, feet on the ground, no nonsense. And I, again, was impressed with the first couple of scripts that came my way. And we dealt very seriously with very serious subjects. Schizophrenia, wife-beating so on. And we had letters from people saying that the subjects had been really dealt with very maturely. And that was very satisfying.
0: In real life, have you met women like Hyacinth and Hetty? Oh with the hyacinth's
1: all over the world. They're all over the world. I'm very big in Botswana. I love saying that. I mean, I get letters from all over the world and the odd taxi driver in London, you know. I, you remind me of my missus and all that goes on. <laughs> yes, they are. And I grew up watching quite a few of those ladies in Cheshire. Well,
0: now, yes, indeed. Pretension. Pretension. Yes. Capital letters.
1: <laughs>
0: you worked alongside a young Dominic Monaghan during Hetty Wainthrop. Now, he played your sidekick, Jeffrey, and he's since gone on to have a very successful career, notably starring in the Lord of the Rings movies, of course. Well, you must have followed his career, surely, with great interest.
1: Adorable. He was absolutely adorable. And his instinct was impeccable. And the honesty, emotional honesty of the lad. He was very young, you know, and was selected, I think, from about 200 youngsters. We loved him, and I'm just so delighted that he's uh,
0: gone on to greater things. In a newspaper article, I think you were quite critical of the BBC's handling of the series, namely the way they ended the programme.
1: Well, they didn't have the courtesy to tell us after inviting us to do a fifth series. They didn't have the courtesy to tell us that somebody, somebody new, had arrived at the head of the department and decided that this was old hat. And we had to find out by devious ways that they weren't going to do any more. And people were keeping themselves in the ready. The producer was a marvellous woman. She had a writer's You know, thinking up basic ideas. It was disgraceful. If they'd said, four series, that's enough, goodbye, fine. No. But no. Very poor.
0: Well, finally, you've worked with some of the world's most popular writers and performers. But in the present day, how do you choose the work you perform?
1: Again, The quality of the writing, it doesn't matter who it's by. If it's by an unknown person or an established writer, what is there on the page? Because you start and you end
0: with that, with your service to that. Are there any roles you still would like to perform? Well,
1: I'm not very good at saying that, really. I think the one regret, and I don't, I'm not a regretting person, but I would like to have played St. Joan, and I never did that. But I don't sit about mopesing. About I can't that. see
0: you being burnt at the stake. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I'd crisp up very nicely, I think. There wouldn't be a dry eye. <laughs> <laughs> well, Patricia Routledge, alias Hysen's bouquet bucket whatever your fancy and of course hetty wainthrop it has been a heartwarming experience do please come back soon to our lovely island and thank you very much indeed for joining me on this week's geraldine jameson interview
1: thank you it's been a great pleasure and a great honor and i shall be back thank you